Well, I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. It, it looks something like this. This is Power Couple Financial Podcast with Ariel Gonzalez from Arrive Financial and Insurance Services and his wife, the 403B doctor, Adela Gonzalez. When a part of your financial strategy is out of tune, your long-term goals, your retirement savings, and your legacy can all suffer. With many years of experience in the financial industry, Ariel and Adela provide their clients and prospects with the information they need regarding Social Security, retirement income planning, wealth management, and much more. Listen in as we address your financial concerns and provide helpful solutions to put you on the path to achieving your retirement goals. And now here is Power Couple Financial Podcast with Ariel and Adela Gonzalez. Hey everybody, good morning. This is Ariel Gonzalez here with uh, the, I am the not your average financial guy. I'm here with my lovely wife, Adela Gonzalez, and we are uh, a dynamic duo here on the Power Couple Financial Podcast. Hey honey, why don't you say hi? Hi everybody. I'm super excited to get started on this podcast and I'm, I'm sure you guys are going to be excited to listen to this wonderful lady's story. So um, who, our today's guest is Rosalinda Chaires. Um, she is a principal here at Wasco, California, um, one of the elementary schools. And um, I was super excited with her story. And so um, I just want to kick this off and, and get going. So welcome to our podcast, Ms. Thank Rosalinda. You. Thank you. So let's go ahead and um, so the reason why I asked uh, Ms. Chaires to be a part of our podcast is her story was so compelling and I think she is a true testament of success and everybody has success in different ways and I think what she has conquered in her life and what she's overcome, um, it's, it's inspiring and I think everybody needs to hear these types of stories and so I'm super excited to share with you her story and hopefully it inspires you to keep going whatever you're, you're um, trying to overcome or any setbacks that you know there's hope and that if you can keep you know having determination and, and guidance and um, you can also be successful like herself so uh, Rosalinda, let's let's get started. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. I know we started on that. We started on talking about um, tacos de canasta. <laughs> oh, is she the one? Yes. Oh, okay. And so um, then it just kind of fell into this beautiful story of your childhood and um, what you you and your sister would, you know, get the, the corn and, and walk, what, is it one or two miles to... About two miles. Yeah, well, first of all, miles. where did you grow up at? Well, first... I want to thank all of you. Thank you both for this opportunity. I look forward to this interview. I also look forward to sharing my story. And hopefully it'll have a positive impact on, on someone in one way or another. I was born and raised in Mexico City. My parents separated when I was very, very small. I have no memories of their, of their union at all. And shortly after my parents separated, my mother, while I was still, I believe, a toddler, was very... Um, frustrated with the situation that she was left suddenly as a single woman with five children. How old was your mom at that point? I would say about maybe early 30s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Five kids? At least five kids. Wow. Yeah, she had already been married before, so. Wow. Yeah, a total of eight kids at that time. Um, but the first three were from a different man, so the five of us, one day she just picked us up from Mexico City, took us uh, to a six-hour drive southwest of Mexico City in a small town 
called El Aguacate, which means the avocado yeah. of all things, <laughs> <laughs> in uh, Guerrero, Mexico. And there, for the first time, we met our paternal grandparents. Her parents had passed many, many years prior to this situation. And when I, my very first memory as a very, very young, young child is meeting my grandparents, where we went from Mexico City being one of the biggest cities in the world yeah. with a lot of accommodations, you know, all of the amenities that we sometimes take for granted nowadays to a very, very small town of just a couple of hundred people at most. No electricity, no running water, no gas. Dirt floors? No stores. Dirt floors. Wow. Adobe homes. Yeah. Wow. Simplicity. Wow. Yeah, simplicity, very agrarian type of a you know, lifestyle. Uh, when I, the reason why I was asking about the dirt floors because I remember before my dad passed, I ended up, uh, uh, my dad grew up in a small town in Nuevo León called uh, San Vicente. And uh, <clears throat> it's where basically everybody knows everybody and there's like two roads and you just kind of grew up there. And I want to say there's probably a couple hundred people there that live there. So anyways, we went back and I walked into my grandma's house and she didn't have dirt floors, but it was pretty close. I thought it was dirt floors, but I guess there was something on it. Uh, but it reminded me of, I was like, man, so I guess back when my dad was growing up, wow. um, it really was dirt floors. That's why I, I can picture kind of that in my head when you're talking about it. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So yeah. I, her husband just showed me a picture of what, of those those homes. Yep. And it's it's jungle yeah it's jungle around yeah. it and so I'm afraid have to of, like your mom wasn't like having to fight off like well she just left us there she dropped us off oh, with, with, our, with our grandparents so all eight of you guys or five of you the five, five. of us five. yeah wow. yeah yeah wow. she just dropped us off there and you know my parents my grandparents uh, soon realized that you know they went from being elderly probably in their 60s with only their youngest son and them living together in this home. And all of a sudden, five new children arrived who were always hungry. And so my grandfather called on to his, um, one of his daughters, who was already married at that time with her children of her own, and asked her if she would choose one of us to wow. help out with. So I remember, you know, he lined us up in kind of like wow. birth order and, uh, <laughs> She came over and looked at us, and she pointed out to me, and I was taken, you know, another maybe six or seven hours horse ride to her home in a little town called San Francisco, of all things, Guerrero. Wow. Yeah. So, so uh, have you been able to keep in contact with your brothers and sisters since that time? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. yeah. There was a big well, gap in time. Tough. I don't know right? if we because knew your mom, your mom... Left, left well I don't want to say she left you but she she put you in care of your with the grandparents okay. uh -huh. and then the ties are really with your brother and sisters and then you get pulled from them and then you're a lone ranger pretty much to a family that is new to me really strangers to yeah. you yeah wow that's yeah. tough and they grew up you know very similar town Adobe <clears throat> Homes very uh -huh. humble family yeah. if you wanted to eat you raised corn you cultivated corn uh, beans, mm -hmm. pumpkins, um, and you lived up the land. You we, lived up yeah, the land. A very agrarian type mm -hmm. of a, a yeah. raising, but oh. you appreciate. You know, it helps everything. you appreciate everything. Everything that we have now. Yes. You know, yeah. and then some. I think this is the land of milk and honey, and because yeah. I compare it to how I, I was Where raised. Where you came from? Yes. Exactly. So after living there for a couple of years, um, my mother would, I guess, somehow gather money. Mm -hmm 
and then she would go back to Guerrero, pick us up, and she would take us back to Mexico City. And when she would take us back to Mexico City, again, she realized this, this is tough to raise five children in such a big city with a um, minimum income because her job was to go and clean houses, mm. iron clothes for other people, wow. um, things like that. And then she would run out of money and she would then take us to foster homes in Mexico City, shelter cares in Mexico City. One time I vividly remember taking us to a Jehovah's Witness congregation, putting us at the uh, front of the congregation and saying, please help me with my children. And we would go to, you know, again, strangers' homes. How old were you about this time? I was probably around six. Okay, so you started to understand what was going on at this point. I'm not sure. No? I'm not sure. I just know that you intuit instability. Right. You kind of make your peace with not knowing what's going to happen the next day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of it, I think, depends on your fortitude, the kind of person, your makeup, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I never questioned. I never sat there and went, why me? Right. We just know that this was just our lives. That was normal. Exactly. Did your mom ever stress to you, like, her struggle of, you know, trying to figure out, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to feed you guys? Did she ever, you know express any of those feelings to you guys not to my memory no i think i was because i was one of the youngest of the five and did your like siblings kind of say well it's okay we're just gonna go we're gonna whatever mom has us do we're just gonna go with it yeah i think you know if memory serves me well the oldest Teresa, was probably the one that would question her the most Uh because she was already and how old how old was was she if i was Six, she was about 11. Okay, so she definitely... Oh, yeah. She yeah. understood more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the responsibility of our upbringing was often placed on her hands. Wow. For sure. Yeah. Wow. So um, that happened a lot between maybe the ages of three and, and eight or nine. And then finally, when I felt like we had a little bit of stability in our lives where she left us with our grandparents for, let's say, more than two years... We got a letter from my father, who at that time was living here in Lake Tahoe, California. Uh And he very clearly stated that he wanted for one of his children to come and live with him in in Lake Tahoe. My sister, by then being a teenager, Teresa, said, I want nothing to do with that. And the youngest sister of mine, who was Amparo, Amparo, she was about three or four, she's about three and a half years younger than I am. She was too young. So I was chosen. Wow. Yeah. Uh, But for a while there, um, maybe months to a year, my grandparents fought my father tooth and nail. And they said, no, you're going to separate her from us. You know, you're going to take her away from her world, you know, her upraising. And my father was very adamant, and he got his way. So shortly before I turned 10 years old, um, I came to this country and I was smuggled in this country. By how, how did you? I'm curious. How did you come across? Because I, I, I know how my parents got across. I was smuggled. Yeah. My uncle, my father's youngest brother, brought me to this country. I had no idea how we were going to cross. I had no idea what meant it meant. Right. You know, almost ten years old to come to this country. Right. But um, we got on a bus from Mexico City to Tijuana. Uh-huh. Um, waited there in Tijuana for a few days. One evening, we were told we were going to go to an abandoned home. So we waited there in an abandoned home. There was maybe about 25, 30 of us. I was the only, only child in the group. Wow. 
Um, when we were in this. Was year. anybody with you? Was your dad with you? Or were you? The, my uncle. Her uncle. Your uncle. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. my father's youngest, youngest okay. brother. He was probably already in his thirties. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So we we waited in this abandoned home until late, late in the night. Um, and then next thing you know, my I remember my uncle vividly wrapping a rope around his wrist and my wrist and he said I say run you say you know you run you know I say stop you stop wow and next thing I know we're crossing across some wetlands with helicopters above us yeah. and oh my um, gosh. German shepherds chasing us wow until we made it safely to another abandoned to another home. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you remember all that. That's yes. where yeah, those are vivid. To... By then, I was just about 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So then your dad, so now that's in Tijuana. You're crossing now into, you know, San Diego area county. Yes. Um, how did you end up getting to Tahoe to your dad? So a couple of days later, uh, one of my cousins picked us up in, in Tijuana, I believe. No, um, San Diego. San Diego. Mm-hmm. And uh, we drove us to Lamont. Mm-hmm. where at that time he was living and I was introduced to my dad's sister-in-law who lived in Lamont at that time and I waited there for my dad for a few days and then he arrived with his wife and his three children from Lake Tahoe wow and that's the first time I, that I had met him that he had and met I think him. that was early April 1978 wow I believe yeah that's incredible yeah so just a little over 40 years or so 40 years yeah now that yeah. you had that first interaction with Mm -hmm. your father with my father yeah Yeah. and my stepmother and she was one of the most gracious human beings Mm -hmm. nothing uh the stereotypical stepmother (laughs) at all and i met my siblings by then they had three beautiful children and shortly i discovered that uh, the reason why my father wanted me to come to this country is because he wanted his wife to work and he wanted somebody like me to stay home with his youngest children. And, and you were 10. And I was 10. You I was only 10. a child myself. You were a child. Golly, yeah. yeah. Talk, no pressure. No, yeah. yeah. So did he put you in school? Were you going to public no, school? No, that's just you, it. You were um, just... If you recall the immigration laws at that time, very different from now, really, very much my father understood that if you had American children in this country, you couldn't be deported. Mm. And so uh, he and his wife, not having uh, any legal status in this country, stayed in here, stayed here because their their children mm-hmm. were or American children. citizens. Uh-huh. So shortly after I arrived, um, he was frequented by immigration officers. Uh-oh. Yeah. Wow. And he would say to the immigration officers, pretty much flaunting his American children, you know, you can't take me because I have American children. Wow. But on that day, they showed up, and then he, I was there with him, and he was uh, also flaunting me. And the uh, immigration officer said to him, what are you going to do with her? And he naively said, she's here to take care of my youngest children. Wow. And the immigration officer said, oh, if you don't send her to school, we will arrest you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Golly. So in September of 1978, I started fifth grade at Bijou Elementary. In so had you gone to school like in Mexico before? Yes. That? Not continuously. I don't remember ever finished yeah, one full grade. Yeah, because you had grade. so much instability. Mm-hmm. So here, yeah. there, here, yeah. there. Yeah. 
Wow. And then, so I forgot to ask, now, was your only language Spanish? Only. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you entered into... Beijing Elementary, a student population of probably over a thousand, I remember. That's a lot of kids. It is. That's a big school. And not only that, but it was all Anglo. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like Tahoe area. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I was, I think, the only brown child there, the only Hispanic child. But it was a beautiful experience. It really was. I really? don't remember discrimination. I don't remember being treated any differently than everybody else. That's incredible. I remember being treated like a pet project. We got to teach this child English. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come. You were the pet project. I, I feel like I was. Flavor of the month. Yes. Here we go. Yeah. And I remember the Anglo children, all of them asking me to say certain words in, in English. Right, because you had that very heavy accent yes. and I didn't hear the difference you know in small nuances in, uh-huh. in, in the language but they specifically would ask me to say the word sheets sheets oh. <laughs> was was like, <laughs> yeah it's sorry it took yeah. me a little bit it's okay it's okay <laughs> but um I was I felt like I was very much sheltered I felt that it it was um the goal of the school to teach this, you know, yeah. child, brown girl, brown yeah. girl, very different from everybody else, how to speak English. Wow. And so um, I was fortunate that in the classroom, my teacher, Mrs. Anderson, bless her precious heart, wherever she is, she assigned me another student in the classroom. Her name was Christine. Oh. Christine was an amazing girl because she was also Anglo, uh, as fair as can be. But it seems that her dad had taught her or had taken her to Spain and taught her Spanish. Oh, wow. wow. So she spoke Spanish, enough for me to understand, enough for us to communicate. So she would do a lot of the translating for me. Beautiful. So I owe a lot of my success to to her learning the language. And then the school did something else that I thought at this, even now I think it was wise. They sent me to a place called the Dome. And the dome was where all the children who were who had learning disabilities went. Okay. And you know that may sound terrible at that, at, as we speak, right. but they address my language needs. Wow, much different. Much so different. They kind of use that that environment to kind of like pick up your increase your learning curve. There was like, a lot of one on one, small yeah. group, a lot kind of. Catch you up, yep. Like, come on. Yep. And one of the things they did, I'm not sure what this machine is called, but it's it's probably the size of a big shoebox. And uh, there were literally dozens and dozens of boxes with pictures in them. And what it was is the pictures were on a card, maybe uh, half, a, half a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. And you would run the card on the machine, and the machine would read the strip at the bottom of the card. And so the first two la- oh, words, wow. yeah, the first two words I ever learned once I ran the first card across the machine was, they were monkey, Bird. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you you so put on the understand and learn. And oh. it was it was so well, the words were so well um, spoken, enunciated that you couldn't help you know I mean but if you repeat really, it yeah you listen yeah. exactly the way yeah. it was said. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and I would go through these boxes, you know, oh on a daily basis. So I repetition, repetition, yes. repetition. Yes. But there were so many of them. Right. There were a lot of them were nouns, verbs, oh. but there was always the little picture and then the right pronunciation. Wow. 
So I would go through these boxes like you wouldn't believe it. So then how was your dad adjusting to you no longer being able to care for his three younger daughters while you were at school? Did you still have that burden of having to do all of it? He had two boys and a little girl. And as soon as he realized that, then I became not necessarily an asset, but another responsibility, another mouth to feed. Um, he, of course, his plans really changed, changed mm-hmm. for lack of better words. And I did not know this, but at that time, he and his third wife were probably not having a good relationship wow. as a married couple. And about nine months to a year after I arrived, his third wife uh, packed up everything and left. Wow. Uh, and, and Took the kids. Mm-hmm. So did you go with them? No. No? So it was she, just you and your dad? Well, she said she couldn't take me mm-hmm. because I wasn't her natural child. Yeah. Sorry. No, no it's no, okay. it's awesome. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so I stayed with him. He arrived the day that she left, and I told him what had happened. And um, all this time, my father was known for many things. One of those things being that he was um, an alcoholic. Uh, so uh, he turned to much more heavily drinking, um, where he would abandon me quite a bit. Wow. So then you were just home by yourself? A lot. A lot. Yeah, a lot. And you were maybe 12 at that time? No, 11? I was 11. Wow. I was oh my 11. gosh. Yeah. And um, what saved me was that school was in session, so mm-hmm. I would not have to worry about eating. Yeah. Um, I would sometimes take food back home. Yeah. But eventually he got tired of that life, and he said one day he came home after being gone for a few weeks. A um, few weeks at a time? Yes. So you, were so you were by yourself? For a few weeks? Yeah. At 11? Yes. And eating from school? Yes. Surviving? Like, wow. Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. So, <laughs> That's um, amazing. Thank you. So he just said, you know, I'm tired of this life. I'm going to, we're going to leave. Uh-huh. He said, pack everything up. We're going to Lamont. I thought, nah, he's, he's drunk. He doesn't know what he's talking well, about. from Lamont. Exactly. A big <laughs> <laughs> I grew up there, so I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he uh, was not joking. Sorry. He was not joking. He decided that that's, that was the best thing for us. And sure enough, not even a day later, we were already on the road to Lamont. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He um, left me there with his, his sister-in-law. sister-in-law? Uh-huh. And uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, he left and I only saw him one more time after that. Really? So let me backpedal a little bit. Um, for those of you guys that are listening to the podcast right now, uh, she, as she was talking about her time with her dad when her stepmom left, uh, she she teared up and you know emotions started taking over. What what brought you back to that point where you're it's still where it still affects you so much that it made you like well what is it that till this day still affects you in that way? I think it's the fact that I didn't really grow up with my mother. Yeah. And that woman was a very stable female Fig- in life. figure in your life. Yeah. yeah. And she accepted you yes. even though you weren't hers. And she um more than anything 
I remember it broke her heart having to leave me. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. It was not easy for. I mean, she. Yeah. Looked at me straight in my eyes and said, "I can't take you. You're wow. not my child." Yeah. And I remember looking at her, you know, like, kind please. of in awe. <laughs> yeah. You know, and thinking, "Wow, this person really cares about me." Yeah. Yeah. That she took the time to explain to me, and uh-huh. but she had a very difficult choice to make. Mm-hmm. I understand. I don't. I don't. Well, you don't hold it her. against her no. either. and it's yeah. not my place to, you know, yeah. judge what what she did or why she did it. Mm-hmm. Um, all I know is that we had that moment where she bitterly explained to me why she had why to she this. had to leave, and yeah. I couldn't go with her. Mm-hmm. And even after you know she left, and she knew how my father was, and she knew how difficult things were going to be, um, she would. I know she would send people to the schools to check on me because they would ask me you know um, wow. different I guess friends right. or, uh, social workers you name it and, and they would ask me you know she's concerned about you yeah. she wants to know how you're doing mm-hmm. wow now yeah. do you ever have any contact with her or your no, other siblings no um, I think the life that she and my father had was so difficult she mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. she just made herself uh, as yeah. distant from as, him as, as possible, possible. And wow. again, I don't blame her. Yeah, it's not my place to you know place yeah. to question why she did uh, what she did. I just know that you know from what little time I had with her and my father together, it was it a was very, precious. It was Absolutely. well, it well, was for, a challenging well, life for them. For, for them, for but, one point in your life, though, you had like a foundation of stability right. for a while. Yeah, with her, with, with her. her, with her, mm-hmm. and my younger siblings. Yeah. Yes, um, because. You know, if she would buy them something, she would buy me something. If she would take them for a walk, she would take me for a walk. You know, if um, she would cook for them, I would eat with them. So there was no dis- wow. nothing, no difference. Yeah. What an awesome woman. Yeah. She was. Yeah. She yeah. really was. Yeah, yeah. because she it's was. not easy to take in somebody else's child and start to treat them like right. they're exactly their own. own. Right, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and she did, and she embraced me. Yeah. And I think beautiful. she realized, too, that the decision that my dad had made to separate me from my siblings was not something um, That very, he considered, either. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't um, well thought out on, on my behalf. Mm-hmm. It was well thought out on his behalf. Mm-hmm. And so she realized that that was probably something not wise for him to have done. And wow. I remember at one point in our conversations as a child, she said, I told your dad not to bring you. Wow. But nevertheless, yeah, you know, she and made so the best of it. Now you're in Lamont. You're with your your Thea, uh-huh. essentially. Now your, your dad takes off for pretty much forever, essentially. And now where does your Thea, how does your Thea now go about uh, you as her child yeah she's taking care of you she takes me in with no questions Mm -hmm. um another you know great human being in my life yeah she um teaches me how to cook Uh uh-huh she teaches me how to you know be responsible Uh Uh, a lot of things around the house you know a typical mexican woman would teach it you know a mexican child um I i continue going to school I went to Mountain View Junior High. Ah, Tigers. <laughs> uh-huh. I remember a lot of my teachers there. Uh, so where did you go to high school? Foothill. How did... Okay, see, that's where you messed up. You should have went to Arvin. I should have, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. Um, after she had taken me in for about a year or so, 
um, my dad comes back into the picture. Oh, wow. oh my goodness. And when my dad comes back into the picture, he takes me away from her. Wow. Uh, and we find a little apartment in Lamont. And I was probably in the eighth grade by now. And so my dad and I are back living together, and uh, you know we're, I'm close enough so that I can go and visit her. She was only lived about maybe a, a mile away at most. And so my dad was back to his ways, you mm-hmm. know, drinking extremely heavily. When he drank, he was a very violent person, oh, wow. um, and he was not quiet about his violence. And so I know that because we lived in such a small apartment, I know the neighbors took notice. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sure. And then um, one day when it was my graduation day from eighth grade, um, I told my dad we had prepared for my graduation. I said, don't forget, you know, it's today, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. He didn't go to my graduation, and I walked home. And it was already pretty dark. Yeah, because I know they have graduations in the evening. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So we, I get to the to the apartment and I couldn't find him, and the lights were on and I looked for him and I thought, well, you know, maybe he's in the back. So I went to the back, a small, very small area at the back of our apartment, and he was there, but he was passed out. Oh my goodness! So um, I, you know. Uh, Pushed him around a little bit to yeah, wake up. To wake him up. Uh, he he got up enough. I helped him to get back in the apartment. Uh, we went inside the apartment and um, gave him some food so he could sober up. And he kept apologizing to me for not being, Going there. To the being there, not mm-hmm. being at the graduation. I said, "Don't worry, Dad. You know, eat." Fell, he fell asleep. He passed out. Fell asleep, and um, I fell asleep. And the next day, around 9 o'clock in the morning, I had a knock at the door. And I was by myself because he went to work. And it was the sheriff. Oh, wow. The sheriff from Lamont. And uh, they asked me who I was, and I said, I told them who I was. A social worker came with him, and we sat at the little apartment, and they said, and, and I remember this, he, she said, are you ready to stop living this way? And I just nodded yes. Yeah. And they took me to. Did um, you know who they were? Like, did you know she was a social? Because you were only you were. It was probably grade 13. like 12, yeah, 13. 12, 13. 13. So you under, you yeah you you understand yeah. what's going on. Yeah. You know who they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so I was taken to um, at that time it was called Shalimar, but now it's called the Jameson Center. I remember oh, yes. that. Yeah. yeah. And um, then he did disappear, and I did not see him again. Wow. Have you seen him since? I only saw him one more time many, many years later. Did he come try to find you? No, no. He um, told my family that um, I was taken away, um, that he didn't do anything wrong. You know, my family knew better because I was saying. Yeah, Yeah, they took you away for no reason. Yeah, exactly. So um, he fled the country. Wow. So is he back to Mexico right now? I think he lives in San Diego. Oh, okay. I think. Wow. But I'm not sure. So you're now living in the Jameson Center. Yeah. And there for about two and a half, maybe three months, uh, the summer of 1982. Yeah. Um, I waited to become a ward of the court or a foster child. Wow. And um, shortly after that, I went before the a judge, and he said, 
you could either li live with your aunt or you could live in a foster home. Mm -hmm. And I was told by the social workers and the attorneys that if I was to choose my aunt that she was going to go through a series of inspections and, mm. and mm -hmm. things like that. And I didn't want to put her through that. Yeah. And so I chose to live in, in foster homes. In foster home. Mm -hmm. Until you were essentially, what, 18? Well, at that time, I don't know if that's, the law has changed, but at that time, you can remain a foster child or a ward of the court until either you turned 18 or you graduated. Wow. So I graduated, I believe, June 11th of 1986, and on June 12th, I was emancipated. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And if you're not ready, you go from being a foster child to being homeless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, so now you're 18, you graduated yeah. high school. You're an emancipated. So then what, like, where do you go from here? I um, mean. The good thing is that I had enough intelligence. I was graced with enough intelligence, I should say, that um, I graduated from Foothill High School with honors. Wow. Okay. And full scholarships. So you took advantage of everything that was given to you. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so then, after graduating from Foothill High School, I already had set up that a certain date in late June, I was going to start a program called the Summer Bridge Program at CSUB. So the 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 educate or the the dome where they were basically helping you get up to speed, that really, in essence, set the tone for the rest of your educational. Your time in school. I think my experience at Bijou Elementary did that. Yeah. Because at that point in your life, if you would have went to maybe a certain school that wasn't as open to helping you, I mean, you, it could have really set you back. But the fact that you graduated high school with honors, not only did you go through high school, you killed it. Yeah. That's awesome. And with yeah. all of the setbacks you had along yeah. the way. Yes. Like, yeah, I noticed that one of the questions it says, you know, um, who were your mentors growing up? I would say easily it was my grandfather, yeah. my paternal well, grandfather. Why? Because he would always say, I want the best for my grandchildren because he saw how difficult things there were, uh -huh. things were for us. And he would say, I don't want you to be stupid. <laughs> and he, would, yeah. he was blunt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a That's lot a good like point. Yeah. yeah, don't be stupid. Yeah. But yeah. it resonated deep. Always. You're like, I don't want to disappoint. Yeah. I don't want to disappoint. Yeah. And, and so. wait, I don't know if it resonated as much as I thought, I don't want to not follow his directions. Yeah. Right. If my grandfather doesn't want me to be stupid, I'm not going <laughs> to be stupid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was oh that simple. <laughs> there wasn't any depth to it. It was just follow directions. Right. You know? yeah. Okay, can't be stupid, got <laughs> it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know, and he would encourage education in us. Yeah. And I have um, my, um, I wish I would have brought it with me. I had my report card from one of the elementary years in, in Guerrero. Mm -hmm. And you see his signature everywhere on that report oh. card. Because back then in Guerrero, we didn't have parent conferences every quarter. We had parent conferences every month. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was really involved, yeah. you know? So. My, grand, my paternal grandfather was very much involved, wow. uh, hands-on, wow. you know, as far as That's being awesome. the father figure for us. Yeah. He stepped up where his, his own son did. did not. Did not. Yeah. 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 So did you play any sports in high school? I wanted to play soccer. I even joined up for soccer. I even went to practice. But uh, my foster parents were not um, 
really for it because uh, it required transportation. Oh. I was a ward of the court. Um, maybe it wasn't something that they thought was. So were your foster parents, your parents throughout high school, the same family? No. Or did you kind of bounce around? No, I went to the first one for about 10 months in South Bakersfield, close to uh, South High School, because okay. that was my first year. My first, my freshman year was, was South a, a South High. Um, they were elderly. They were also getting a little bit more ill. I think they both had diabetes. Oh, wow. So I only stayed with them for about 10 months. And then um, another foster home was found for me where I did stay exactly three years with, in my second foster home. And do you still keep in contact with them? I used to, but not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. No. Yeah. And were you the only foster child that they had at the time? No. I had at least maybe 20 plus foster brothers and sisters wow. in that three year period. Oh my Some gosh. of them, you know, teenagers. Yeah. Some of them as young as four years old. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Did you ever connect with any of them? No. None of no. them? No. Um, some of them lasted as long as maybe seven or eight months. Mm hmm. Uh, one of them lasted 45 minutes. Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, you just, yes. every situation is different. different. I mm-hmm. remember one of them, we picked her up from the Jameson Center, and my foster mom and I, we were driving home, we were driving her to our home, and my foster mom was very clear. She said, for the first few days, you're just going to get acclimated. You're not going to go anywhere. And this young lady was adamant that she was going to go to the park that same evening. And my foster mom told her, if you're not going to listen or abide by our rules, then right. you have no place with us. And my foster mom made a U-turn and took her right back to Jamison Center. Oh, my so goodness. That's what I'm thinking, 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, wow. So you're now, you graduated with honors. You're um, at Cal State. You're at Cal State. Cal State, Cal State. Bakersfield. Yeah. Summerbridge. Summerbridge. Summerbridge of 1986. So that's where they transitioned you over from high school to college. Yes, it's, it's called like a program. It, yeah, it's a, it's a four week program, or it was at that time, uh, where you get to meet some of your professors who also oversee the program. We got to live in the dorms, and that's where I got to meet my wonderful husband, Studley husband. <laughs> by the way, he's sitting here overseeing this whole uh, podcast, just so you guys know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So now he you were, he was attending school as well. He had transferred from BC. He had finished okay. his associate's degree at BC the some the the June before. Uh-huh. So he yeah. was already a junior and I was a freshman. Wow. So now what was your plan at the Summer Bridge? What was what was had you thought about what you wanted to do or what you wanted to become? I've always wanted to major in English. Okay. And that's exactly what I did because again thinking that my grandfather said don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. <laughs> Um, and I remember how difficult the language was. And I thought, I want to master something, or I want to have something that says I attempted to really get good at the English right. language. Wow. So I majored in, in English. In English. Mm-hmm. So. so then let me backpedal again a little bit real quick. I want to sure. go off topic. Do you still keep it? Was your grandpa, first of all, is your grandfather still alive? He passed away in October of 1987. Oh, wow. So literally a year so after. So how old was he when he passed? I would say probably in the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. And did you get a chance to at all before he passed? Oh, wow. So it was really, that's yeah. tough. Especially when you hold him in such that light. High regard. Had such an impact on your life at such a young age. Yeah. And not to be able to have that type of like. Can you bring the pictures? Yeah. That type of like, uh, uh, I don't want to say closure, but that type of like 
impact. Well, the impact, impact to, to, if, yeah. to show him like, Grandpa, Look, Grandpa, I did it. it out. I'm know? not stupid, yeah. Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that. Um, he knew that I graduated from high school and he knew that I, had, I was at the university. Because oh, so he knew he, this. He, we, we, we shared correspondence. Oh, okay. Actual oh, letters. that's awesome. Look at that. That's awesome. So then your your grandpa knew that you were going to Cal State. Yes. his granddaughter was getting educated. Yes. She was making the most of it. Yes. Oh, okay, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He, he was very aware. It's amazing. And you can see from the pictures, uh, I don't look anything like him. So then, who who would you say you look like more? My no, my um, mother's side of the family. Your mother's side of the family. And there's another picture right there where I look even more awkward, uh-huh. uh, because I don't look anything like my siblings, in my opinion. Uh, I'm really brown. So then, were you the black sheep of the family? Apparently, yes. Yeah. Not by so design. So which one are you right here? Yep. Yep, the brown one. The brown one. <laughs> <laughs> she was in the toaster a little longer. Yes. <laughs> I was. I really was. It's funny then that picture my siblings used to say, you were the fat one. From where? From where? No, you just had more of a rounder face. Yeah. 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 You were definitely in the toaster one. So then you're starting your career at Cal State. You're getting things going. You're majoring in English. Um... Take us through those. How many years did it take you? So did you complete a master's degree at Cal State or what did you do? I finished my bachelor's in English in the summer of 91. I finished it earlier, but we couldn't graduate until the summer of 91. And then I became a substitute teacher, subbing for several districts here in Kern County, including uh, Bakersfield City, Bakersfield City, Wasco, Shafter, uh, Delano. And then by then we were, um, we got married in 1990. So yeah. So we then, were already married. While right you were finishing you up were, school, yeah. you guys got married. Mm-hmm. Wow. We got okay. married four years smart after. Man. Yeah. <laughs> lock it in, lock before it in. she went out to the world, smart man. <laughs> it was all planned. Yeah. <laughs> it was all planned by design. I love it. I love it. So after uh, I finished my bachelor's, saying I I wanted to substitute for a while because okay. my son, we had our son, and and he was still a very young child. I wanted to stay with him until he was probably a toddler or yeah. older. Yeah, and then um, after that, I did finish the teaching credential because you can't teach unless you have a teaching credential. And then, uh, shortly after I had my, I had my, I finished my teaching credential. I thought, you know what, I want to get my master's. Yeah. And I was encouraged by um, the administration around me that I should go into administration. That's so I I went to Point Loma Nazarene University. Wow. to get my master's and my uh, credential in administration. And now, at that point, did you guys still live in Bakersfield? No, we've been, all this time we've been living in Delano. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Wow, so you would commute all that way? Yeah. So that's 30 minutes, you yeah. know, to yeah. dedicate another mm-hmm. two years. So that yeah. your master program was, what, two years? Yes. Wow, so you had a, you're a young mom, you mm-hmm. have a young toddler, mm-hmm. and now you're committing two years of your life to yeah. go and get higher education, yeah. get that master's degree. Yeah. So that's all because amazing. I didn't want to be stupid. <laughs> Thank goodness for your grandpa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I also didn't want to always, you know, when you get it, uh, when you finish your teaching requirements, mm-hmm. and you don't expand, you kind of lock yourself in that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to just lock yeah. myself in that. Although teaching is a 
beautiful profession. Oh, yeah. And uh, teachers had to be respected. Yes. Absolutely. I still didn't want to just remain. I, I think right now with what I'm seeing, um, teachers almost now are treated like students, meaning the lack of respect that's there, even from the administration, from what I see. I'm on the outside looking in, so I don't know for sure. But just seeing the, the attitude around certain campuses, it's kind of like teachers aren't held to that standard anymore. They're not elevated to a position of authority. It's almost like they're peers to the students. And, and more so because there is a gap in my observational experience that nowadays, for the last couple of generations, parents are not really stepping up in parenting. Yeah. And so now teachers are making up for mm -hmm. uh, a lot of ill-behaved or poorly behaved children, I should say, and they're teaching. Right. And so the, the current culture as, uh, as a former teacher and as a current administrator is that parents come in with a sense of what have you done for us lately? Right. You know, mm -hmm. and why haven't you done more? Right. So that puts a lot more burden on our teachers, on teachers yes. and on our schools. Mm -hmm. And we keep stepping up, and we, I feel like we keep stepping up, at least at my school. We have the history of the success that we are servicing our children uh, constantly and with a lot of professionalism right. and a lot of dedication. And yet, you're right, teachers are not being praised and being acknowledged for that really hard work. Right, yeah. So, um, so let me backpedal. So how long did you, so you went from substituting, you got your teaching credential, and then how long did you teach per se before you finally went into it? So you got your master's degree, so was it just those two years that you substituted and then? I substituted for about three and a half, and then I was offered a contract in the spring of 1996. Wow. And my son was, like I said, a toddler. He was born in 94. So I took the contract, and I became a first-grade teacher. Okay. And I was a first-grade teacher for 10 consecutive years. Wow. And I really, really enjoyed it because my bachelor's degree was in English. So I, I knew literature. I knew uh, composition. I think I did. Um, I understood the, the language, but you really don't appreciate the language until you have to teach, teach it. it. Yeah. To students who are six years old uh -huh. and wow. yeah, who don't know or understand the sound system. Right. And there's definitely a pattern to teaching the English language to any uh, person, particularly six year olds. And if you stick to the pattern, it, it renders success. Right. Nonetheless. It's not an easy thing to do. Mm. Uh -huh. uh, teaching children how to read, write, speak, and listen to English is rocket science. Well, they say English is one of the hardest languages to learn, right? Because there's right. so many different meanings for the same word. For example, the word of has at least 11 different meanings. Oh, wow. wow. I had no idea. And spellings, they all sound the same, but they're, they have yeah. different meanings yeah. there, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> they're called homographs. Um, so yeah. from your experience learning English, how did that help you teaching in the first grade? Did you were you a little bit more sympathetic because you yourself kind of went through a yeah. similar situation? Well, especially with those children who would just arrive freshly from Latin American countries, not speaking the language, you know, and 
my principal's understanding that maybe I was the only person in the grade level or one of a few teachers in the grade level who spoke Spanish fluently. Uh-huh. Here, take this child, you know, <laughs> see what you can do. <laughs> and, and I was okay with that. Yeah. I was perfectly okay with that. I taught, fortunately, during the time of a, a law that took place. It was called, um, I believe it was called 20 to 1. I could be wrong. And it, essentially, you couldn't have more than 20 students per classroom oh, in the lower gotcha. grades. Uh-huh. So that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, seeing children who arrived at your classroom, uh, sometimes not knowing how to hold a pencil, yeah. and then leaving your classroom knowing how to write a complete sen- a sentence, Sentences. was uh-huh. extremely, extremely yeah. gratifying. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can see it being definitely rewarding. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, you get to see that <laughs> real hard. What really hard work looks yeah, like. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. So ten years of first grade teaching. Yes. And then when did the transition to going into administration take place? Well, well, I was a first grade teacher. I always got involved in committees. Uh, there's always committees that teachers can participate in curriculum, homework committee, uh, benchmark committee, you name it. And so I was always in those committees, but I also would um, put together for our school a program called the Cinco de Mayo program. Ah. Um, and our principal at that time was a member of uh, Mariachi. So we would put this uh, nice program together, and, and that caught the attention of the superintendent. Wow. And when a vacancy came up for uh, administration as a vice principal, um, I applied, and I, I got it. Wow. So yeah. do you think you make, you make more of an impact as a teacher or as our administration? It all depends. It all yeah. depends. So the impact changes? It does. Okay. But I don't think it's, in my opinion, I don't think it's any less yeah. or any deeper. Yeah. It just all depends on how you approach it. Mm-hmm. As a principal, um, I try to be very, very visible. Um, I try to build relationships with my students because mm-hmm. that's what they need. Yes. It, yeah. Our field is about building relationships. And as a teacher, you can build those relationships that are a greater depth. Mm -hmm. But as a principal, you can build this relationship at greater impact, if you will. And and what I mean by that is, you know, you drop the same two pebbles in the same pond and they both have their their ripples, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And as a principal and as a teacher, neither one of them is really any greater or deeper mm-hmm. it just all depends on how much you get involved right. because think about it as students that you were if I asked you who was your teacher in eighth grade uh, science mm-hmm. you might get crickets yeah crickets but if I ask you who was your principal at the high school you're gonna go oh right yeah. it just all depends how that person affected your life right um, I remember my high school principal at Foothill High School, Dr. Knickerberg. Really? He, has, he had no idea how much I love that man. Wow. But I, I really appreciated his presence in my life because he was always available. Right. And that's huge. Mm-hmm. huge. He was always yeah. physically present. I would see him every day. And you know what? Growing up in Arvin, uh, there was a lot of times me growing up where I could have made a decision one way or the other, but it was because of the relationships that I had with my coaches and my teachers that they would sit me down and be like, hey, you're a smart kid. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing that? Exactly. Did you know blah, 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 blah. And it was those little minutes, those little you know times that they just kind of pulled me to the side where because they took that investment in me, I didn't want to let them down. Right. So it changed my direction. Yeah. For me, it was Mr. Slagle at Foothill High School. 
my government civics teacher. Mm -hmm. He made a big impact in my life for that reason. He would pull me to the side and he would say, you can do better. Wow. You can do better. And, I would, and, and the thing is, is when they tell you, you know they're right. You're exactly, because they see the potential in you. But they yeah. took the time to have those few right. precious conversations with you yes. so that they know that they show that they care mm -hmm. and you perceive that they care. Right. And then I would go back and think, I remember when Mr. Slagle would tell me, you can do better, yeah. you can improve. And I would think back, oh, my grandfather said, you yeah, shouldn't be, be stupid. stupid. <laughs> and he's kind of telling me you're yeah. kind of being stupid. <laughs> so, you know, every, every teacher who would say, you can do better, rewrite this, mm -hmm. you can do better. Yeah. Go, oh, my grandfather said, don't be stupid. I love it. <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but um, oh, I just lost my train of thought when I was... So where are you at now? So which, so how long have you been in this industry? Um, what are your goals now? Because obviously you're tenured, you're, you, you have, you're seasoned at what you do, you're, you're, you do a very good job at what you do. Some, some around you may even consider you to be a, a great leader, but the way I see it is if you have a leader with no vision everything else falls to the wayside so what is your vision like what what's the what's next for the school like how how are you able to uh build on what you've already done to still bring the difference to the school just continue to work on what i know has been successful for my school yeah. for the last five years so you know you have your core things if you know absolutely. at the end of the day i can always go back to the basics and this is always going to work absolutely yeah. When and, I and what are those? Tell me, just like when, off the top of your head. Sure. When I started at my school five years ago, or a little bit more, I told the teachers, think long term. Think what's going to be the what's going to give us the the greatest. Um, what's going to ren render the most success mm -hmm. with the strategies that we're going to use on a daily basis but that are gonna be true and tested, tested and true throughout the years. Because curriculum and instruction comes and goes. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, philosophies and waves of philosophies and ways of doing things come and go. Yeah. You get a new governor, you get a new philosophy. Yeah. You right. get a new uh, leadership at the top, you get new philosophy. Mm -hmm. But independent of those changes, what works? And what works is, in essence, knowing that your children have very specific needs and that you're going to address those needs in in a way that independent of what other wave of children or what other group of children is is going to be before you those things are going to remain true so i tell my teachers when when we have english language learners also known as els what works for them right what works for them is for you to constantly model the speaking, the listening, the reading, and the writing of the language. Mm -hmm. So if, if you could have whatever curriculum, that if you're constantly modeling the language in all four of the domains, mm -hmm. and you're measuring yourself, you're checking yourself, mm -hmm. that you're doing a, a thorough job, that's gonna be very uh, beneficial to all the students. Right. Um, also knowing that you have to have as a teacher a set of understanding, a, a set, set of um, knowledge, priorities, if you will, that I need to be prepared. I need to know X, Y, Z. I need to be on top of things. I need to make myself uh, 
knowledgeable and informed. And if you give the teachers the time that they need so that they can have their tools and gather their tools and prepare, then, and, and you foster those relationships, I think you can make for a very successful school wherever yeah. you are. No, and I, and I honestly, that's a true testament because I had the pleasure of meeting a few of your staff, your your teachers, and they speak nothing but high regard of you. Thank you. I mean, they, they said, look, I've worked with other principals before, and by far, Rosalina is like the best. And mm-hmm. so that was that resonated with me as far as like wow she's an incredible leader yeah. that you. means so, you're not stupid <laughs> no i hope not so i have my moments but uh, yeah, nonetheless. No. yeah. It, says, awesome. it says a lot and and you know i mean when you look at listen to your story i yeah. mean man i mean she had me in tears i was trying to hold it back because this whole week has been emotional for me been to too many funerals so um sorry no it's but it's beautiful to see and and i and that's why i was so um wanting people to hear your story because you've you've done you've overcome so many obstacles that most people would have probably quit or said you know what i i don't want to do this i won't i'm i'm done you know, even when they became an emancipated adult, like to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm done, I'm gonna, I'm figuring it out. But you had a, a goal and you wanted to pursue it and, and you met your incredible spouse and, and building a, a beautiful life together and, and being able to, you know, um, put all those things that you've gone through and apply it in your work. And it's beautiful, you know, it's yeah. a success story. And you've, to had, make. you've had every, Reason, every reason to quit to make a bad decision <laughs> yes and to give up yeah every reason yeah there's people that have a quarter of what you had to go through and choose the bad way or right choose to give up mm-hmm. it seems that way yeah. yeah it just seems like uh like nowadays a lot of the mental toughness is lacking in a lot yes. of people right. yes they get one setback and they call it they're like oh, i just can't do it and yeah. that's one of the things that i have observed with the parenting, the parenting. that i have seen where right. I, I call it I, i'm just gonna say it the way I observe observe it it. Mm -hmm. and that is parents are lacking the emotional fortitude to raise their children 100% they don't want to hurt their children's feelings by being direct yeah by sticking to what is right yes I agree the the children learn their power very very soon Mm -hmm. and children do not have the skills to know what to do with that power so they always use it to their advantage right yeah, it's very evident. I mean, I see it. I, I mean, I coach soccer, and I and I see it very much with my children, and, and a lot. My kids were 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 different, and so um, we're we're not a typical you know fa- um, parenting. I mean, we kind of go with the way we were kind of taught, but at the same th- time, um, our kids observe how other kids react, yes. there, and they see that. Kids don't know right from wrong. Yes, they they kick and scream and get their way, and so um, it's yes. it's beautiful to see that um, you know you've been able to impact. Yeah, so I think many. what I've seen a lot, and there's no diminishing mom's role and everything, but I think a lot of it is because there's no dads in the house anymore. Yeah, the lack of it's not everything, but it's a big part. When you take out the father's role or you diminish the father's role in a family, to me, a lot of that's missing right now with all these you know women that are going to have to play both roles. To some extent, that is true. I agree, but it also depends on the quality of the father. Yeah, you could have a father that is present, but if he's like my father, yeah. I'd rather he not be around. Right, 
That's true. That's so, so true. It just all yeah. depends. Wow. So um, what would be the best advice that you would give if you were sharing what you learned to your younger self? Do exactly what you did. did. Yeah. Just yeah. keep going. Yeah. And so do you wish you could change anything? Or are you like, no, nah, I kind of like that because it made me who I am? I think if I could change anything, and I don't know if it would be within my control to change it, I would say that I would be more open-minded towards the decisions that my mother had to make because um, that affected my life so so deeply and yeah. so profoundly that to this day I don't have a relationship with her. With her. And yeah. she's alive. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And oh. if you saw the pictures, you know, she's, uh-huh. she's there and she's a very uh, intelligent, extremely well-spoken woman but I have no relationship with her. Really? Mm-hmm. So when you go down to visit your sister um, in Mexico, in Mexico City. City, is she there? Is she in Mexico City? Yes, or? she is. And we do see her, but really? there's just no connection. None. Wow. Mm-hmm. And and how old is she now? In her 60s, 70s? Yeah, probably late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But you guys, you, you've been able to reconnect with your, your siblings? Yes. And have yes. that build that yeah. relationship. In fact, again. they were they were here this summer. That's beautiful. Yeah, we spent a few days yeah. here. And so, how many years had gone by that you finally was it when you became an adult that you were able to? Yeah, it, w- back it with wasn't them? until um, I think my son was already born, and well, at least when we first got married, between the time that I left uh, Guerrero in 1978 till the time that I got married in 1990, there was practically 12 years worth no communication. Mm-hmm. None whatsoever. I found out later that my father would not share those letters with me that my siblings would write to me. Oh wow! And um, when you know we finally found each other again, when my siblings started coming to the states and lived in San Diego, my um, brother, uh, one of them who was uh, handicapped, uh, came to my wedding, and he's the one who oh, walked me down the my aisle. Oh gosh! Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So uh, slowly throughout the years since then, we have connected more and more yeah. and more and more to a point now where we see each other and, you know, it feels like no time has ever yeah, separated us. That's beautiful. Yeah. What an amazing story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I think all of us have that, you know, the same drive mm-hmm. because all of us experience, you the know. Same stuff. Same yeah. stuff. When now, did any know. of your other siblings, you know, um, get higher education or become? All of them except one. Really? Yeah. There's a psychologist, there's a business entrepreneur, there's a record producer, there's a poet, a writer, um, a nurse, um, and then there's the youngest one who just likes cleaning homes for a living for some reason. (laughs) And it's not that she's not capable, she does just learning is, or a higher education has never been something that has interested her. Yeah. But that's beautiful. Like what you had touched on before, like this is a land of milk and honey. You know, that what you have experienced and your siblings experienced down in Mexico City to come and and create a life of success and right. seeing like this is the opportunity to yes. have so much more. Yes. And it's those are success stories. Yes. Those are beautiful success stories. So, All of them. Um, I'm excited. I, I'm so thankful we have this opportunity to sit down with you and hear your story. And it's a beautiful, amazing, inspiring story. And so I'm excited for our listeners to really... Um, take 
take all this in and and hopefully inspire them to continue on in their journey you know because it, it is a beautiful story so uh, again thank you so thank you. very much Rosalinda, for being a part of our, our podcast thank yeah. you so, so for those of you guys that uh, enjoyed this please do us a favor leave us a review give us a rating uh, we've been averaging like I said last week right around a thousand listeners a week and so <clears throat> it's pretty inspiring we get the opportunity to have guests like we had today on our show uh, to kind of really just bring home because a lot of you guys listening may be going through something similar. So if you find her story inspiring or even relatable, um, man, that's the reason why we do this. So do us a favor, leave us a review, uh, rate us. We'd love a five-star rating, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But thank you guys for listening so much to the Power Couple Financial Podcast and we look forward to our next episode. So, Rosalinda, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. For sharing that story because you didn't have to. So, I appreciate your time on a Saturday. Thank you. It's my honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Power Couple Financial Podcast. Don't pay too much for taxes or retire without a sound income plan. For more information, please contact Ariel or Adela Gonzalez at Arrive Financial and Insurance Services. Call 661-636-6862 or visit them online at arrivefinancialservices.com. All matters discussed during this show are for informational purposes only. Each individual situation may vary and the opinions expressed here may not apply to everyone. Materials presented are believed to be from reliable sources and no representations can be made as to its accuracy. All ideas and information should be discussed in detail with one of our qualified representatives prior to implementation. Insurance products and services offered through Arrive Financial and Insurance Services. Ariel Gonzalez, Adela Gonzalez, and Arrive Financial and Insurance Services are not affiliated with or endorsed by the Social Security Administration or any other government agency.